This is a Federal News Network podcast. Earmarks, appropriations as favors to individual members of Congress, have made a big comeback. More than 7,000 worth billions and billions in the latest deal. We get details from Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us about this, because earmarks had been sort of ruled out by Congress for, what, about a decade now? And it seems like they've thrown that to the wind as they've thrown all fiscal restraint to the wind, haven't they? Well, yeah, they were they were banned for a decade, really in response to the Tea Party movement. It was 2011 when Republicans took the House at, a, at the big 2010 election. There was so much focus on fiscal conservatism at that time. They banned earmarks. Members had talked about bringing them back in some limited and more transparent way for a long time. This is now the second year of the newly instituted earmark system. No scandals so far, but it is proving to be popular. You know, last year, the first year they brought it back, they said, let's limit this to no more than 1% of discretionary spending. And members were so careful that they only hit about two-thirds of that 1% limit. This time, they're closer to the limit. By my count, overall, this omnibus bill has about $15.3 billion in earmarks. That's 7,234 specific projects inserted by members. The limit would be about $17 billion, according to their 1% limit. So they, they got a lot more requests in this second year of the new system. They approved more requests. And it's it's something that's getting bipartisan support. You know, Republicans were skeptical at first. They've kind of bought into it a bit more. Right. And in the House side, that's sort of roughly so, because it looks like the Democrats have maybe, what, 60% of the earmark dollars, as you report. Republicans may be 30, you know, a third, and then there's a bipartisan piece. In the House, it's it's roughly a 60-40 split. I, I believe Democrats have maybe a little more than 60 percent. In the Senate, the Republicans had kind of talked their way into an, a more of an even split. It's not quite 50-50, but they got almost half. That was part of the discussion around having a 50-50 Senate, trying to get buy-in because Democrats didn't want to do this system on their own. They really said, we're not going to be the ones to bring back earmarks if it's going to be a partisan thing. So Republicans, especially in the Senate, the ones who participated really made out well because fewer Republicans have have bought in and said, yes, I'm going to do this. But they talked their way into almost a 50-50 split. So if you look at the individual list of of the top earmarkers, it does happen to be Republican senators, Richard Shelby, Jim Inhofe, Lisa Murkowski, those types. And that's because they're trying to make it pretty equitable and, and almost an even split, a bit of an advantage for Democrats, but almost even. And there are fewer Republicans participating so far. Richard Shelby of Alabama, of course, is retiring after this term is, is retired, basically now. And he got $666.4 million down there to Alabama. Sounds like there's going to be a lot of Richard Shelby Bridges, Richard Shelby Schoolhouses, Richard Shelby Highways. Yes, uh, that was actually a joke that one of the conservative lawmakers criticizing this said. I believe it was Mike Lee who who was pushing to take the earmarks out, saying uh, evidently there's something left to be named for Richard Shelby in Alabama. He's the highest ranking Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Even outside of earmarks, he's managed to bring a lot of money back to Alabama. Uh, He has downplayed the importance of the earmarks in this bill in his last go round. But yeah, $666.4 million for some big budget stuff. There's $200 million in there for the Alabama state 
port authority. Over the last two years, he's managed to get uh, some big chunks of money for infrastructure and some for universities in Alabama. And it is a sort of a legacy builder. Sure. There's the Richard Shelby dead squirrel by the side of the road, the Richard Shelby tin can. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government's Congress reporter. And on the House side, again, a Texan from a Texan Republican, Weber, got $287 million for a district, presumably, so that on a percentage basis, he's probably doing better. Yeah, Randy Weber made out pretty well. His tended to be, uh, I believe, a a bit more defense-focused. And that's one of the takeaways, especially if you you dig into the details on sort of the Republican and Democrat divide in the earmarks. You see more military construction earmarks. They, They banned the typical defense earmarks. None of this is going to defense contractors, but they can do stuff at military bases. That was uh, a popular one for some of the larger Republican earmarks. So that's that's why you see somebody like Randy Weber, who's a pretty defense-focused lawmaker, getting $287.5 million. Meanwhile, the Democrats tended to go, there's also infrastructure, more domestic focused, uh, less for the military, and other things through community development, museums, police equipment, fire station, that kind of stuff. Uh, Those are some of the the most popular things as I look through a a very long list of earmarks. Yes. And what was their justification? Because before the return of earmarks, they would say, well, because we can't get a budget done on time, there's no grease anymore. And the earmark was the grease. Now, two years in a row with earmarks at a very large scale, and yet they're still playing brinksmanship with government shutdowns and so forth. And it took till, you know, darn near the end of the year, really, to, to get this all done. So what's the justification? How are they explaining this? Or does anybody care? There are a couple justifications. And there was a debate over this because House Republicans just a, a month or so ago had to vote on whether to allow earmarks in the new Congress because they're taking the majority of the House for one you know, they, they banned earmarks for a decade, and that did not take care of the debt and deficit. This, uh, Whether you see a project here or there that appears to be a good idea or a bad idea, you know, $15 billion on top of a $1.7 trillion funding package is not exactly the driver of the debt. Two, the money, after they decide a top-line spending figure for the federal government, the money is going to be spent. And if you carve out 1% of that for earmarks, that takes some power away from the executive branch. There were a ton of complaints from lawmakers, including Republicans, saying the Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Transportation would not always be responsive to projects that lawmakers thought were very important. And a really influential lawmaker could go to them and maybe through back doors, get them to approve something on the Army Corps work list. Other rank and file members wanted a chance to say in a limited way, all right, I don't want to just depend on President Biden to choose what gets funded. We should have a little bit of a chance for lawmakers to say, hey, this bridge in my district is very important. All right. So enjoy the money, I guess, as it's flowing. And it looks like these are back permanently. I mean, we can see this whenever they get around to the budget for 2024, presumably a year from now. This is going to be this is they're back, right? Yeah, the the outlook is pretty positive for the supporters of earmarks that they uh, vote about three quarters of the House Republican conference voted against a ban on earmarks. You see more Republicans this year than last year participating. So it is bipartisan, especially the decision by Republicans in the House 
who are taking the majority to continue this uh, makes it appear to be definitely a bipartisan trend and something that is trending in a, in an upward direction with limits. But it doesn't appear to be going away. And there's not a ton of talk about reviving a ban. Jack Fitzpatrick is Congress reporter at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll look forward to having you and Lauren Duggan, your colleague, back with us throughout the coming year. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Earmark the Federal Drive. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on, a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn. Uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and 
you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn.
from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.